All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, I'm going to open some prayer, and then we'll talk about what you're looking at there, because it's a little bit different than normal. So let's pray first, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Lord God, we thank you that you give us a facility to be able to gather together in one place as your church here in Gina, Louisiana, that we might be able to sharpen our minds with your word, to come to understand your glorious gospel more clearly, to be shaped and transformed by it here, so that we might go outside of these walls and share it with our community and demonstrate your love in action towards our community as well. Please bless our time as we sharpen our minds in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let me explain a little bit about what you're looking at there. What you've got in front of you is Article 4 of the Baptist Faith and Message over the three iterations of it. But in 1925, it was more than just Article 4. It was Article 4, Article 5, Article 6, Article 7, Article 8, and Article 10. Okay. Article 9, we will look at in the future as we come to one of the next articles in our current Baptist faith and message. So they had a whole bunch of articles all related to salvation. And then in 1963, they said, this is ridiculous. We're putting all this together in one article and just calling it salvation. Okay. So that's why on the 1925, there is so much information. And then when you look at 1963... It's like, whoa, whoa, where did everything go? Okay. So what I did, instead of just highlighting a bunch of red of everything they took out, on the 1925, I just highlighted in blue everything they kept. So everything that is not highlighted in blue, they took out of the Baptist faith and message. That's a lot of material. Okay. So then the 1963 to the 2000, there was relatively little change there. They, they separated justification out and made it its own section. But largely, that, that's about it. So from 1925 to 1963, huge, huge shift. Most of the material removed. Then 1963 to 2000, not as much. So getting ready and preparing to go through this, uh, it, it was very difficult for me because I wasn't sure how to address it was such a drastic change you feel like you really want to go through and look at all of it okay so what I what I did was to try to help us get through this efficiently is I just took the first part of article 4 in the 2000 Baptist faith and message it's titled salvation and it has this introductory paragraph and then it breaks it down a regeneration B justification C sanctification and D glorification I just took the first paragraph and then I've given you, in the 1925, I've given you two sections that were completely removed that are kind of summarized in this short paragraph for the 2000. So that's what we're looking at here. One section of 2000. Then we're going to go back in time and look at um, the original Article 4. And then uh, the Article uh, Freeness of Salvation, I think Article 6. And, um, and then I think that that's going to um, kind of wrap up our time today. And then we'll start looking at the other ones next week. Okay. So first thing you see here on your note-taking page, salvation involves 
the redemption of the whole man and is offered freely to all who accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who by his own blood obtained eternal redemption for the believer. In its broadest sense, salvation includes regeneration, justification, sanctification, and glorification. There is no salvation apart from personal faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. So at the top of your paper or right there in that gap, you can write the word soteriology. I will spell it for you. Yes, I need it. (laughs) So I know you need it. S-O-T-E-R. S-O-T-E-R-I-O-L-O-G-Y. S-O-T-E-R-I-O-L-O-G-Y. Soteriology. This is the study of salvation. So we've talked before about ecclesiology, study of the church. We've talked about hermeneutics, the study of interpreting scripture. You would be shocked at how many different ologies we have in theology. They come up with an ology for almost Everything It's just un- incredible. But soteriology is the study of salvation. Okay. So what I want to do is I want to highlight specifically in the 2000 here, it starts off, salvation involves the redemption of the whole man. What I want to ask of the Baptist faith and message here, if I could have a conversation with it, is why? Why does it involve that? What does redemption of the whole man mean? How is that accomplished? We can see here it's offered freely to all who accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who by his own blood obtained eternal redemption. So we see that it was obtained by Jesus' blood. We also see that it's a free offer to all who accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. But here's what it does not explain well. It does not explain why Jesus' blood redeems us. Just that it does. It does not explain what this free offer means. As you go back and look at the 1925 compared to 63 and 2000, you'll see 1925, even though it's spread over multiple articles, is very extensive, very detailed. And then we lose a lot of that detail in the year uh, following, 1963. A lot of it was simplified. So what we're going to do today is take these two phrases, this Redemption of the whole man and offered freely to all. And we're going to go back in time to 1925 and look and see how that Baptist faith and message described those things. Okay, that's what we're going to do today. Now, before we move on from this section, I do want to hit this last sentence here. It says there is no salvation apart from personal faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. This is one of the few additions that the 2000 made to the 1963. They added this phrase there. It wasn't there in 63. uh, No salvation apart from faith in Christ. So this is called the exclusivity of Christianity. Christianity is an exclusive religion. What this means is that if you are not a Christian, you do not benefit in salvation. Now, there are some Christians even today, especially in liberal branches, that will propose that you don't have to have faith in Christ to be saved by Christ. He died on the cross for the sins of the whole world. And the sins of the whole world are forgiven. So whether or not you profess faith in Christ or repent from your sin, your sins atoned for, period. 
Now, you may not benefit here and now because you're not following Christ. You're not doing things the way that he's designed you to do it. So it's gonna, life's going to be hard. But, but everybody, this is the inclusive view of salvation. The Baptist faith and message clearly rejects that. There is no salvation apart from personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior here. So that's what it's talking about here. If you do not submit to Christ, you will not be saved. And I also uh, pointed out earlier that in the list here, salvation includes regeneration, justification, sanctification, glorification. That word justification was also added. The 63 did not have it. I'm going to explain why I think that is next week, but at least just know that the 2000 added that in there also. So now we're going to go back in time and look. You'll see your next section here. The original Article 4 was just titled The Way of Salvation in 1925. And here's what the article said in its entirety. The salvation of sinners is holy of grace through the mediatorial office of the Son of God, who by the Holy Spirit was born of the Virgin Mary and took upon him our nature yet without sin, honored the divine law by his personal obedience, and made atonement for our sins by his death. Being risen from the dead, he is now enthroned in heaven, and uniting in his person the tenderest sympathies with divine perfections. He is in every way qualified to be a compassionate and all-sufficient Savior. So, this is the original, and this was completely removed. Okay? Remember that the Baptist faith and message, the purpose is, we've got all these Baptist or Baptistic churches, we want to do ministry together, but that's hard to do if you have drastically different theological beliefs. It's really hard for me to go on the mission field and to support a missionary that might be teaching people, it's okay if you don't have faith in Christ, you'll still go to heaven, but you should still follow Jesus. I'm not going to support that missionary. So the Baptist faith and message was to say, okay, what do we need to say? This is in bounds, and then this is out of bounds. We require these beliefs in order to partner together and to work for the sake of the gospel. That's the whole purpose of this. So anything that might separate someone from the faith of Christianity ideally should be in the Baptist faith and message. If there's something that we would look at and say, because you hold this or don't hold this, you're not a Christian. That should be in the Baptist faith and message because that's who we want to partner with. So remember that. In light of that, for a lot of this, I really don't have a good explanation for its removal. As I was studying through this, and I didn't study this in, in seminary, uh, they talk about some of these ideas, but you don't study the Baptist faith and message. So I have been studying this for the past several, several weeks. And when I got to this section, I, I really was shocked and, and caught off guard because a lot of these 1925 articles are just so, so clear. So I, I don't have a good explanation for why this was removed. Some of it I can kind of understand or justify. Uh, but some of this, I think, is just so helpful. And then some of this, I would argue, falls in that category of this is necessary. I think that we need to say that we believe these things. And I'll give you a couple of examples here. Here's a phrase that I think is helpful but not technically necessary, I guess. The mediatorial office, that Jesus is our mediator, I think is a helpful thing for us to clarify as Baptists that we believe. Though I don't think it's technically necessary Obviously, they removed it. Another phrase you'll see here is born of the Virgin Mary. 
that he took upon himself our nature yet without sin. If you recall, these ideas have already kind of come up earlier in the Baptist faith and message. We saw this a little bit. Jesus taking upon himself human nature. He's fully God, fully man, okay, but without sins. We already saw that. But then we see here, born of the Virgin Mary. I would think that's not articulated anywhere in the Baptist faith and message, and I think that that's an important thing there. We've got another example here talking about Jesus' perfect obedience and that he made atonement. So again, we've already sort of hit on these things. Remember, we talked about how Jesus lived in our place, his active obedience, and he died in our place, passive obedience. So we've talked about those things, but here it is articulated very clearly. One more example, that he's risen from the dead. This confirms that God has accepted payment for sin. So these are all generally articulated or applied in other parts of the Baptist faith and message. But their relevance for salvation here is just so helpful. So I asked myself as I was studying, well, why was this scrapped? And unfortunately, all I can do here is speculate. So I'm going to give you my speculation. You can take it for what it is, and then we can continue to benefit from our study of it. Here's my speculation. It seems to me that the dramatic reduction and simplification, that's the way that I see it. It's been reduced, and big ideas that took a whole article to expound have been reduced to single phrases. Okay? It's my estimation that that coincides with a lot of the revivals and crusades that really geared up in the 60s to the 80s. Okay? Billy Graham, I think, came into prominence his was around 1950, maybe a few years before that. He started doing revivals, and then it just blew up and took off. So revivals start spreading all around, especially in America. Billy Graham obviously goes around the world, but especially in America, you see this just explosion. And so as these revivals are starting to have a lot of, I'm going to call it success, but what I really mean by that is just large numbers of people coming to places to hear the gospel. Large numbers of people coming down and making decisions to follow Christ. So as we see this, a lot of people are asking questions. Have we made the gospel inaccessible by how we are teaching it? And so I think, this is an assumption of speculation, that this simplification and removal in the Baptist faith and message probably mirrors what's going on in the country at the same time. Where we're seeing success, we will have more responses to the gospel if we just make it simpler. And so we see that reflected in the Baptist faith and message as well. A lot of churches begin to kind of adapt some of these revivalistic strategies, and then it gets solidified in, in history. Uh, a lot of churches start to adapt some of these revivalistic. Uh, I can't remember exactly how I said it. That that part wasn't in my notes. But but there is a I think in my estimation and looking over history a simplification of the truths of the gospel to make it so that it is more palatable or that someone might more likely respond to it in faith. Yeah, it's kind of the the gist of of what I'm getting at here. So this appears to get results, and so the trend kind of continues, this simplification of the gospel. And now that doesn't mean that a gospel presentation that is simplified is wrong. Okay? It doesn't mean that it's wrong. It just means it's just more simple. It just is what it is. 
Okay? So for now, what we miss out on when it comes to redemption in the 2000 is what the 1925 records in its opening. I want to fixate on this idea here as Jesus is Lord and Savior. Uh, you see it in the 2000. We accept uh, is offered freely to all who accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That is really unpacked in the 1925. We trust Jesus as our Savior, and we submit to him as Lord. If you're anything like me, for a long time, I grew up hearing uh, Jesus is your Lord and Savior. Except Jesus is your Lord and Savior. And you kind of just memorize that phrase. Well, that phrase actually exists on purpose. And I'm like, oh, there's purpose behind this. This is crazy, okay? Why do we call Jesus Savior? Because he atones for our sin. He has saved us, and so we trust him as Savior. Why do we call Jesus Lord? Because we submit to him as our Lord and follow his commands. This corresponds to faith and repentance. Faith is trusting Jesus as Savior. Repentance is turning to Jesus as Lord. It's very intentional. Well, in the Baptist faith and message, we see Jesus fulfilling these roles. It talks about his obedience to the law. It says that he honored the divine law by his personal obedience. So what does it mean that we are redeemed? It means that Jesus wasn't just without sin. He lived in perfection in personal obedience, and then he died and made atonement for our sins. That is the lordship of Christ and the savior aspect of Christ. He's lived in our place following commands, so we repent and follow his commands. He's died in our place, saving us from the penalty of our sin, so we trust him as our savior to save us. He has paid for our sin, so we have faith. We also see Jesus' full humanity and his deity on display here. He's a man, a human nature, but without sin. It talks about his uh, tenderest sympathies combined with his divine perfections. So that qualifies him to be both compassionate and our all-sufficient Savior. So that's the first part of the article, and that takes the idea. In the 2000, we don't see all that. We just see the word redemption, which is correct. It is correct. It's not incorrect. But it begs the question, might some something else have been more helpful? So then we come to Article 6 in the 1925. Article 6 was the freeness of salvation. So here we see this summarized in the 2000 by um, uh, is offered freely to all. That's the best comparison I could make to the 2000. Well, they make what's implicit there very explicit here. Here's what it says. The blessings of salvation are made free to all by the gospel. It is the duty of all to accept them by penitent and obedient faith. Nothing prevents the salvation of the greatest sinner except his own voluntary refusal to accept Jesus Christ as teacher, Savior, and Lord. So again, this is another article that was totally scrapped. And as I read this, I found myself thinking, I want to start talking about some of these things in this way. It's very, very helpful here. I'll tell you, I never use the word penitent. The only time I've ever heard that word used is on the Indiana Jones movie when he's coming up to get the Holy Grail and he's repeating, the penitent man will pass, the penitent man will pass. And he has to go in and kneel before this little saw blade thing comes and kills him. Like That's what I think of when I hear penitent. I don't use that word. 
Well, I went and looked this up like a studious man, and I said, okay, what does penitent mean? And here's what I want to give you here in this section. I want us to look at two aspects of the free offer of salvation. Salvation is free in two ways as we see it unpacked here. Number one, we freely receive the gospel. We freely receive the gospel. We don't exchange any good deeds for it. We accept it. And how do we accept it? It tells us in the 1925, by penitent and obedient faith. Penitent means feeling or expressing remorse. Feeling or expressing remorse. So this is a picture of faith that, yes, there's joy, but there is remorse. A a feeling and an expression of remorse. Well, I kept looking in the definition there. I didn't just stop at the first one. And then later it mentioned the word penance. And so I looked up penance. I know what it is, but I wanted to get the official definition, and I'm glad I did, because it describes self-mortification. Now, this is another word that we don't hear a lot in our churches today, but if you go pick up a theology book, you are very likely to come across this phrase, the self-mortification. Here's what mortification is. It is a feeling of shame, of humiliation, or wounded pride. It's where we have the word mortified. My mom or my dad was mortified that I said this or something like that. Or my spouse was mortified or my daughter was mortified when I put out this rap video for student ministry. Okay, true story. We, we used to do that a lot. Mortification, this humiliation and feeling shame. So combining all this together with the idea of faith, faith is acknowledging and feeling shame over my sin. I'm mortified. I'm humiliated that this is the type of person that I am. And I'm grateful that Jesus is saving me. Now, that's just one descriptor of faith here. Okay? One descriptor. The other descriptor is obedient. So, again, this ties back to the Lord and Savior. Savior, there's this penitence, this feeling of remorse. Lord, there's this desire for obedience. See that theme over and over in this older uh, version here. So it's not just faith, and that's how we hear about it a lot. And that's, if I'm honest, that's how I describe it a lot, faith. Is that wrong? No, it's not wrong. Is penitent and obedient faith more helpful? I would argue it is. It's just helpful. So here's the second aspect of uh, the freeness of salvation here. Number one is we freely receive the gospel. Number two, we can freely reject the gospel. Or maybe put differently, when we reject the gospel, we reject it freely. This is another, the other aspect of the freeness of the gospel. It means that when we reject the gospel, we've rejected a free offer, not because it wasn't available, but because we voluntarily chose to do so. No one can say, I wanted to accept it, but I couldn't. I wasn't allowed. We all have to say, I chose not to accept that. I chose not to accept it. And we see it uh, voiced clearly here. Nothing prevents the salvation of the greatest sinner except his own voluntary refusal to accept Jesus Christ 
as teacher, Savior, and Lord. So, um, do you think maybe that one of the reasons today we have such a problem with people really not understanding what they're getting into when they make a profession of faith might be because we oversimplify things too much? Absolutely. And that's one of my points I'm going to get to in the application. I think that I think you're spot on. Yeah, I think that. And again, to simplify something doesn't mean that it's wrong. It means that there are certain risks that you take with that simplification. Yeah. And and an example that I don't have here that I'll give to you that I've heard a whole lot is um, we simplify the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. With this phrase, once saved, always saved. And so th- that is a real easy soundbite to remember, but that is really easy to misunderstand. <laughs> once saved, always. And I've heard it misunderstood a lot. And it, it also kind of ties back to uh, social media. You see these guys that get on Twitter, formerly known as X, or backwards, X, formerly known as Twitter, right? And so you, they get on X and, and they say something, and you've got a character limit. So you have to simplify, and it never fails. What they're trying to say almost always comes across the wrong way. Just in general, social media, terrible place to have a conversation about things that might be misinterpreted. Just a general rule of thumb, that's a freebie, not in the Baptist faith, the message. Just a good general, just a good general thing to, to keep track of. So, um, yeah, we freely reject, um, and, and you see it there, Jesus is teacher, Savior, and Lord. Even the greatest sinner is not prevented from being saved apart from his own voluntary rejection of the gospel. I think that's just so good. So here's kind of my three points of application. And this isn't something that, okay, go out here and do this to demonstrate the gospel better. This is going to be more um, uh, worldview shaping for you and trying to help you navigate through what we're seeing here play out in the Baptist faith and message. And and I'll go ahead and betray my hand here. I am, and this isn't a political statement, okay? Uh, I am a conservative in that I I do not think that the way forward is always change. I think that the way forward is clinging to our foundations that have been laid in the past, okay? So we have here what we need to do. And there is a prevailing idea within Christianity is what I'm talking about. This progressive Christianity that says we need to unhitch from some of this so that we can finally make progress. I would argue we need to conserve this so that we can finally make progress. So so that's me betraying my hand here. In light of that, I'm going to go ahead and tell you some application that I think is relevant for us as we look at the changes, the severe changes in, in this um, in this part of the Baptist faith and message. Number one, three warnings concerning how we think about and share the gospel. Number one, an oversimplified gospel is a threat to the gospel itself. An oversimplified gospel is a threat to the gospel itself. An oversimplified gospel is a threat to the gospel itself. Itself, Certain aspects of the gospel can be safely omitted without obscuring the general truth of the gospel. Is it wrong to tell someone, hey, to be saved, you need to have faith and repent? Is that wrong? 
No, that's not wrong. That, that's correct. That's what we believe. That's good. That's a simplification. I just said in about 10 words what it took 1925 to say in about 2,000 words. Okay, that, that, That's not necessarily wrong. But there is a danger as we are seeking to simplify things. What we're sacrificing usually when we simplify is clarity. Usually when we simplify, we sacrifice clarity. And eventually you run the risk every time you simplify. You run the risk of no longer having what you originally had. I'll give you an example. My wife makes a killer chicken pot pie. I love it. She'll ask, what do you want for supper this week? Chicken pot pie. Garrett, we just had that this week. We can't, we're not doing this next week. you got to give me something else. I love it. Okay. So chicken pot pie. The way she makes it, the correct way, by the way, you have... <laughs> You have chicken, peas, carrots. She puts green beans. She puts potatoes, which was a first, but I love. Uh, pie crust. I love the crust. Okay, got to have it. Uh, cream, some kind of heavy whipping cream or whatever kind of cream. I'm not a cook. I don't know, but good cream. You mix all that stuff together. You bake it. It's heavenly. It's terrific. Okay. Let me ask you a question. Let's say that you remove potato. Do you still have chicken pot pie? Yes. Okay. Let's take away the carrots. Is it still chicken pot pie? Yes. Okay, you see where I'm going with this. Yes. What if we take away chicken? Oh, no. Uh, because it says chicken pot pie. It's a strong argument. <laughs> <laughs> strong argument. <laughs> strong argument. Well, let's keep the chicken. Let's take away the crust. Oh, no. No, because it's a pot. Okay. Uh, now, now, we're, now we're getting something. Now you wouldn't call it pie anymore. You would call it soup. So eventually you will, as you simplify, everything that you take off, you run the risk of no longer having what you started with. There's a famous philosophical example of this that I'm not going to remember now, but it's this guy's ship. And if you take the ship, what say it again? Ship of Theseus. 10,000 bonus points. Ship of Theseus. Can you explain it to us? You'll get 50,000 bonus points for this one, bro. Do it. You can do it. Just tell us the idea. Just the general idea. If you if you build shit by hand and then stuff starts uh, wearing out, oh, you got to replace the engine, put a new engine in it. And you got to replace the boards, put new boards in it. In 10 years, you replace everything. Is it still the same boat that you had when you made it? Correct. Eventually, you've replaced so many parts, no more original parts exist. So at what point do you cease having the ship of Theseus? At what point do you cease having that ship? Okay. Very – bro, man. That's some, some good students here. Yeah. That's good. Very good. All right. So that's kind of the first point. An oversimplified gospel is a threat to the gospel itself. Simplifying the gospel must be done carefully – to be sure that we don't remove a necessary component. Was that number two? No, this is still under, I'm finishing up number one. I'm a preacher. All right, I need 10 minutes per point. I'm going to try to speed it up. Um, we're still finishing up point number one. Simplifying the gospel must be done carefully to be sure that we don't remove a necessary component. Therefore, we should seek full understanding so that we can give the best simple presentation possible. It's, it's hard to simplify something that you don't know like the back of your hand. You're going to probably get something wrong in your attempt to simplify it. 
Well, if you hear a simple gospel presentation, you think, okay, that's right. I'm just going to cling to that. Well, now you are limited in scope as to what you can explain and the context that you'll be able to share that with someone. So that's all under number one. An oversimplified gospel is a threat to the gospel itself. Here's number two. An oversimplified gospel doesn't hinder salvation. An oversimplified gospel doesn't hinder salvation, but it aids false assurance. An oversimplified gospel doesn't hinder salvation, but it aids false assurance. So someone's decision to respond to Jesus in repentance and faith doesn't necessarily hinge on your ability to fully articulate what those mean. Someone can hear you explain the gospel. Maybe you didn't do it as well as you could have. And the Lord is powerful enough to still, through the Holy Spirit, bring about this conviction of sin and bring about this desire to respond to Jesus as Lord. Okay, An oversimplified gospel doesn't threaten that work. If the person is ready to make decision, it will not get stronger or weaker based on your articulation. However, our inability to articulate the gospel clearly may result in someone thinking that they're responding appropriately to the gospel when they actually are not. That's how those people that think they're saved, but they're not. That's correct. And they may have a sense of false assurance Like, this isn't for me. I'm already saved. I don't need to hear this anymore. It may give them that false assurance that will shut down future opportunities for the gospel to sink in. That's right. So we, we don't really risk hindering salvation with an oversimplified gospel, but we do risk providing false assurance to someone. And I'm going to give an example here. Please don't spear me over this, okay? A common example here is the sinner's prayer. There was a book written by J.D. Greer. I think maybe the students did this at some point. Uh, did y'all do um, – uh, yeah, Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. Did, did y'all – It hasn't been done recently. Okay. I think we have a box back here of a whole bunch of teen editions of that book. And J.D. Greer is really targeting these mostly – I don't want to say that. It's a lot – I've seen it a lot in student ministry, but it happens to adults too. Who feel like they have to keep saying the sinner's prayer because they have this moment of realization. Okay, well, no, now no, I'm really saved. Then they say the sinner's prayer again. And then they point back, well, I said the sinner's prayer. But I just don't know. Well, I just need to say it again. And he said, well, look, let's just slow down. Instead of saying the sinner's prayer 20 times, let's just stop and understand what salvation is. And my hope is that you can be confident of your salvation, not because you said a prayer, but because you know that you're saved. You know that God's word is true, and you, you trust that. Okay? So with the sinner's prayer... Sometimes there's a mistake that's made, and I'm not saying sinner's prayer is always bad. I know people who have genuinely given their life to the Lord through a sinner, an official sinner's prayer. I can remember back, even if I don't know the day, I can remember being in my apartment, I'm 19 or 20 years old, and saying a prayer to the Lord similar to a sinner's type prayer. So I'm not saying that this is necessarily bad. If the one who prays that prayer genuinely understands it and knows what it means... That is a great thing. But if not, that person can become falsely assured of a salvation he or she does not possess because they said the prayer and everything is okay. Okay. Now, I'm not saying that means we just jettison the sinner's prayer. But it is to say that there is a risk in oversimplifying the gospel or our presentation of it. It's not always bad, 
It's just a warning against oversimplification, including response. So that's number two. Here's the last one, number three. God's use of imperfect means, God's use of imperfect means doesn't sanctify those means. God's use of imperfect means doesn't sanctify those means. When I say means, I mean a way of bringing something about, a way that we do something. God's use of imperfect means doesn't sanctify those means. So here's what I mean in a little bit more detail. God can use anyone he wants to accomplish his purposes. Think back to the book of Exodus. In the Old Testament, God used Pharaoh. Pharaoh was not a God-fearer. He was prideful. He was stubborn. Okay, Really, really stubborn. He used Pharaoh to redeem Israel and to deliver them to the promised land, while at the same time using Pharaoh to teach Egypt that God is the only God. Not all their gods. They aren't gods. There's one true God, and it's the God of Israel. Okay? So God used his means for accomplishing that was using a stubborn, prideful man. Just because God used a stubborn, prideful man for his purposes doesn't mean that we should all try to be stubborn, prideful men and women so that God can use us for his purposes. That's an obvious example. Now I want to give something a little closer to home. This is part of my testimony. I was taught the Bible from a youth minister who, come to find out later, was not truly a Christian. I was taught a lot of the Bible from a man who was not a Christian. He later renounced the faith. That's part of my coming to faith story. My coming to faith through someone who did not really have the faith. He thought he was in the moment, but later denied the faith. So God used a non-Christian youth minister to draw me to salvation. Now, picture a church that's considering hiring a non-believing youth minister. Imagine this argument. I've seen God use non-Christians to lead others to Christ. So we shouldn't rule this guy out. Okay? Just because God has used something in the past doesn't mean, oh, okay, th- this is holy now. Now we can use this without without thinking about or discerning or trying to seek in wisdom, if this is even the best way to go about doing something. Now, this truth applies to more than just sharing the gospel. Any unbiblical means, if it's unbiblical, it isn't sanctified just because God happened to use it once. We should exercise wisdom in those things, but I'm just applying it here to to Baptist faith and message. So just because God can use my imperfect understanding of the gospel or my oversimplification of the gospel doesn't mean that suddenly that's the best way to go about it. And that I and it doesn't mean that I shouldn't seek to understand it more fully and articulate it more precisely. Okay. now that's what I've got for you today. We're going to come back next week and we're going to start going through this list of regeneration, justification, sanctification, glorification. We're not going to necessarily do those one at a time. Um, it's hard to say exactly what it's going to look like because this section really caught me off guard. Um, but we're going to do that over the next couple of weeks probably, and we should make it through. Are there any questions unrelated to regeneration and forward, just kind of on what we talked about what we talked about today, or just any thoughts in general? Okay.
relationship and all of this as well because like like I still I still wrestle and grapple with the gospel. Yeah. I've been a believer for twenty five years. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And so like I guess I guess just trying to like reconcile the simplification of the gospel to present that to a person who and, and also like who is that person? Is that person a child? Is that person an adult? Is that person churched? Not churched? Whatever it is, you know, and 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 wanting to wanting to be clear, but also appropriate. That's right. Age appropriate or background appropriate or whatever you want to say. But then also like like that that is not the end. Mm-hmm. The presentation of the gospel is not the end of growth. I mean, we were just talking about that, you know, that you presented that this morning with sanctification. Yeah. That that's a continual process, and the growth and understanding of the gospel is not a a one-time thing. That's like a you, you continue in that walk through mm-hmm. your whole life. And so I don't know. I guess I'm just kind of just thinking out loud, but I don't, it doesn't prove my point there. No, it's still good thoughts, though. Yeah. And, and I think that I think it may be onto something also in that could part of the problem be that there's something deficient in the way that we've approached discipleship, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I think that that's all appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in that same line, I think from a missionary standpoint, you know, we struggle with we're learning a language. We've talked about this before. You know, you're learning a language. So how proficient in the language do you have to be before you can present the gospel? Um, yeah. So I can remember very vividly on Jabba Hussein going down, sharing the gospel with the taxi driver. <laughs> <laughs> They're trying to, in broken Arabic, you know, and I was trying to share John 4, 6, uh, John, John 14, 6. Aisa huwa, Aisa huwa da, Tariq, Aisa huwa da, Aisa huwa Oh, what's the other word? You know, and, but God is using that. Mm. God is doing something there. I hope. I have to trust that he is. That's right. But I think the point is I'm thinking about this too because I lean more towards the simplification side mm-hmm. um, because of our background. But I think what's key is the thoughtfulness. Yeah. I think we have not done well to be thoughtful. Mm. So we can be thoughtful in trying to make sure we have those key elements there. But when we oversimplify, I think that is such a good point. Is we can it can get washed out, mm-hmm. and it's it's easier not to address something that's hard to get to. And that's right. It's, our thoughtfulness and our desire to wrestle with it is important for us all. Mm-hmm. It's not a one-off. It's it's a daily daily thing for us to be to be dealing with because it is depth. There's so much depth, and I mean those topics that we'll cover in the next few weeks are really beautiful but hard to grapple with. Yeah, that's right. That's good. Well, I think one of, one of the places we've fallen down is we simplify it for children because we have to because it's their level. Sure. But then we get stuck there. And as hmm. we get older and older, we never explain it in more depth mm-hmm. so that they have a better understanding of what, you know, what it's all about. So I've got a small testimony with that, if y'all will be patient with me. When I was at uh, Cyprus Baptist Church, they were going to take their student ministry. It was 7 through 12, and they were going to split it into a high school and middle school ministry. So the way that they decided to do that was the next group of sixth graders coming up, it would be 6th through 8th, 
9th through 12th. Well, you didn't want someone to go from youth group and then back down to middle school ministry. That's kind of a wah, wah. So they said, well, let's just take the sixth, the upcoming, the upcoming sixth graders, and we'll just have a sixth grade ministry. Then the next year, the upcoming sixth graders will come, and you'll have sixth and seventh grade. And then in the third year, it'll be full-fledged sixth, seventh, and eighth. So I was tasked with starting the middle school ministry. You take the sixth graders, build it from the ground up, however you want to do it. And so I had, and we didn't know what would happen after a year. If we'd come back to the drawing board and say, hey, this isn't going to work well, let's do something else. We, we weren't really sure. I said, okay, well, we'll try it. So within a year, I had the sixth graders for one year. We talked about the nature of the church in 1 Corinthians. We talked about worship. We, we talked about theology proper. And some people were like, well, yeah, but Garrett, they're sixth graders. I'm like, I think they can handle it. And by the end of the year, we had some of these sixth graders leading their own Bible study out of the book of Romans. And I had this girl, she came up, she said, okay, Brother Garrett, you know, I, I looked at some of the resources you gave me. I think I got this. I'm like, well, look, I'm here if you need me. Just look at me like you're scared and I'll jump in. She said, okay. And so we sat there and she starts talking about, well, I got to looking and there was something called Gnosticism. And they believed you have to have a special knowledge. in order, and, she, and I'm like, this girl is in sixth grade and she is tearing it up. I think that you're right, that we have set the bar too low probably for our children. They can handle a lot more than, than, we, give them, than we give them credit for. Obviously, my bro over here with the ship Theseus. And just knocking out. So, good. Yeah, Ms. Pat. Uh, two things. Your sermon today was right on, and it emphasized again sanctification. And so many times we think, just so I get in the kingdom, yeah. And I'm done. Mm -hmm. But it's a process, a lifelong process of forward movement, some backward, but always forward. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that really impressed me. I'd like to have a copy of your notes. Yeah, I can email it to thing you. I thought about it as we said here was uh, Trace up here. I taught most of Trace's siblings through the years. And Trace was just, I mean, he just kills me, but when he was little, I don't know if y'all remember, they, they were in a kids program here at church. It involved singing and acting. It was a big deal. And Trace was about three. And Trace's dad came to watch. He was sitting on about the second row, the second section. And all the kids started off. And Trace looked back and hollered at his dad and said, Did I do good, Daddy? <laughs> so, but that, that reminds me, that's what we should say throughout the day. And at the end of the day, Did I do good, Daddy? Oh, yeah. He's the one who judges and who encourages us and causes us to grow. That's right. That's good. So thank you, Trace. <laughs> <laughs> Any other thoughts or questions? Okay. I'll close this out in prayer. We'll be done. Lord God, we thank you that you are such a good God of mercy, that you are infinitely complex, and yet you communicate yourself to us in words that we can understand. Lord, we know that we can't comprehend everything there is to know about you. That is part of the joy of getting to know you, is that there is an unending fountain that will never, ever fully be exhausted. Please continue to teach us, Lord. But continue to teach us in such a way that when the opportunity presents itself, we may have such a full understanding, but we're ready to present it however you have it for us in that moment. So that whoever we present it to may clearly understand that they may turn to you in faith and repentance, that they may trust you for salvation, 
receive the Holy Spirit, to be born again, to be a new creature, a new creation as you have made us. Lord, use us for this purpose. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all very much. Hope you all have a good week.